Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have Carl Smith with us. Carl has a story about adoption. We talk a lot about foster care on here, but sometimes the uh, the people don't get to hear all the adoption stories. And there is a ton of adoption stories out there with a half a million kids in foster care. I don't actually have the numbers or how many kids are adopted on an annual basis, but that is that is a huge part of a lot of people's story. And you it know, definitely is, but it's also kind of controversial because some people, you know, want to really celebrate it and shout it from the rooftops. Other people don't want to talk about it. Other people are like, oh, you shouldn't celebrate that because children have lost this. It's it's kind of all over the place. It, it is a difficult and controversial topic. We've I've talked with quite a few people who, who have a very negative opinion on both foster care and adoption. And usually it comes back to an experience in their own life that they found tra- troubling or traumatic or or painful in some way or another. But Today, we wanted to have Carl on here because he has a daughter that he, they were able to adopt from China, and we wanted him to tell his story and invite you guys to listen in and see what you can learn from him. How are you doing today, Carl? Doing great, Jason. Amanda, thanks Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, so my wife and I actually have a biological son. My uh, my wife and I got married rather late. My, I was 28. My wife, well, my wife was older. I'll leave it at that rather than start a range war for how she was. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. Don't get yourself yeah. in that trouble. So um, we had a biological son, not with, not without its, its tribulations. You know, Ruthie was on um, uh, a lot of fertility medication. We went through that cycle and had our son. And after I would say at least a handful of miscarriages, we finally had a heart to heart and said, we really want to have, we want to have a bigger family. We want to have at least two kids my wife's an only child. Her mother was an only child. Her grandmother was an only child. So she wanted to have at least uh, two kids. Um, and I said, you know, if there's one thing I can say with certainty, there's one thing the world doesn't need. It's more people. There's plenty of kids out there that need a home. So we started uh, down the adoption process. Um, and, you know, a couple years and tens of thousands of dollars later, landed in China and brought my daughter back. Um, and obviously she's been with us ever since we got her when she was 15 months. And, um, it's been, uh, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster ride to say the least. It always is. It always <laughs> is. How was that experience, you know, going to China? And... It was, um, I can say this, I, I have no interest in going back. <laughs> for sure. And this is, you know, going back now, 17 years or so ago. So it was a little bit of a different environment. But um, at the time, you could not bring your technically not allowed to bring any hard currency into China. And I was going over there with about $15,000 of American series currency strapped to my self, um, as were all the other families who went uh, who went with us. So um, it was a little unsettling. Um, I had never been in an authoritarian uh, country before. So you kind of get used to the, um, the way things run. Um, and also, you know, uh, I think I come from a fairly diverse area, but um, it's a lot different when you are, um, you know, when you are the absolute minority in the group. Um, so we, you know, the group of us were walking around and, you know, a bunch of uh, pasty white faced white people in a sea of, uh, Chinese people. And you stick out like a sore thumb and you, you know, you really, you really realize you're the, you are the outsider. Um, and the, the stress during the time in China was, uh, on, was really, was one of the worst parts about the, the whole process. Um, you know, during our last meeting with our adoption agency, we had a gentleman who had gone through it before. And, and Jason, I think you'll appreciate this. He was former military and he looked at us. He said, <laughs> look, he was, I'm talking to the guys here. You're on a mission. Get in there, get her, get her out. That's your job. I was like, and I didn't think much of it at the time. But the minute they hand this child to you, and I hold this girl for the first time, 
And all of a sudden I realized I am thousands of miles away from home. I got to get her out of here. And it's all I could think of is that somebody was going to come by in the next week or two, you know, 10 days that we were there and change their mind and say, I'm sorry, you have to go without her. Um, so for, you know, I didn't sleep much for, for a number of reasons because she was sick and everything else, but um, that weighed really heavily on me that somehow this was going to go sideways. And, um, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have the U.S. legal system to back you up here. You were at the mercy of whatever the Chinese government decided at the time. So um, it was, it was incredibly, incredibly stressful. I can't imagine trying to go through customs and countries with, with cash strapped to you, because I mean, quite honestly, you could be looking for a child to adopt, or you could be looking for, you know, a couple kilos of cocaine. Yes. Um, exactly. you, know, you, you don't know what they're going to think you're doing when you show up with that, if they see that money on you. Right, exactly. And that was, you know, that, of course, the, the thing that's odd is they tell you, you know, you, there are very specific rules, but then the adoption agencies, and, and here's the other thing, it's not just the amount of money. There has to be certain denominations and it has to be new bills. So you're going into a bank and saying, okay, I need three envelopes of money, one with 5,000, one with 7,000, whatever, and saying they all need to be you know, $20 bills and they all need to be new. So luck, you know, luckily we had a good relationship with our bank, but they're, they're going through and I'd see we want the wrinkle and say, now we can't use that one, get another one. And you know, you're, so now you literally look like you're, I don't know, Jason, maybe I'm not just going to buy drugs or, or something. I might be carrying in $20,000 of counterfeit money for all they know, because it's all freshly printed. So it was, um, it was really unsettling. And then to, um, you know, come back in the United States and uh, with this this child, and you're hoping against hope when you show them the passport, the Chinese passport, that they're going to let you through the you know let you in. So it was all the way along. Um, despite the fact that the agency prepares you do these meetings and all the paperwork, and they talk you through all of it, you know, every step of the way, you're kind of you're holding your breath and hoping hoping that it works out okay. It almost sounds like it makes you feel like you're a criminal. It does. It it really does. You you do feel that way, and I don't think it's intentional, um, but it's you know it's just the way the process is set up. I will say, um, you know, when we were looking at places to adopt from, we ended up in China one because they had a, a very clear procedure for it. Um, some of the other countries we looked at, um, you know, it was. I don't want to say shady would be the wrong word, but it made me uncomfortable. You know, well, you don't hire, you have to hire a lawyer down there and then the lawyer negotiates. And I thought that doesn't sound good. Um, the Chinese process is very clear. You know, this is the paperwork you do. This is how long you wait. This is how it goes. Um, so when we got there, you know, there every couple of days, there was another event we had to go to where they were stamping papers and checking things. And, um, but it, it, it is, uh, it's unsettling. It's, it's, uns it's unsettling when you're, constantly being hauled to these different places. And again, every time you went there, you see people with white lab coats, you think that's it. They're taking her away. She's gone. I'm never going to see her again. And um, yeah, it's, until we, until we literally got home, literally in the house, it's the first time I think I exhaled for the entire trip. I bet. I bet. That's, that sounds like quite the, uh, quite the experience trying to figure that out. Now this trauma, how, how long yeah. ago was that? Uh, well, Katie is, 19 now. So it was about 17 and a half years ago. So that would have been during China's one child policy, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's why, that's why she, um, you know, that's why she was up for adoption. So um, when I so you hear her story, um, she was found in a box wrapped in a jacket outside of a TV radio station um, in Wuhan city. Um, and we come to understand that the police knew there were certain spots they could go and they would find the abandoned children. Um, and this was one of them. She still had, we think her birthday, we think it's October 23rd, but there's no way to know for sure. They found her on the 26th with the umbilical cord still attached and they guess it was about three days. So it, it's, wow. a, it, that's a, it's a guess, right? Um, and you, you, I didn't think much about it until we were uh, in the Beijing airport coming back and we ran into a... Um, a Canadian who had been working in the orphanages in China for about 10 years. Um, and she said, you know, oh, it's just so nice to see, to see, see these, these girls going on to a better life. And we said, oh yeah, it must be great. They're going to new homes and everything. She said, no, you don't understand. Most of them get killed because, um, you know, it's one child and 
if they, they get thrown in the river, the one river is called the Red River because that's where they drown the children, or they get left in a field. So um, what we tell Katie is somebody must have cared a great deal about you to take that step. Because bear in mind, it is a um, capital offense to abandon a child. So somebody risked their life instead of taking yours to give you a chance at a better life. So, um, you know, that was kind of a sobering moment. Really didn't think about it until we heard that whole thing. And then you're like, geez, that's, you know, it really kind of put it in perspective. Um, it's, a, it's a tough situation. It was a really, really difficult situation. And here's the thing. Uh, we don't know if Katie was the first child and they said, oh, we have to have a son or did they already have a child and she was an accident? We don't know. You know, was her birth greeted with joy? Was it greeted with sadness? You know, those are things we'll just, um, those are answers we're never going to get. Um, and it's, that's, that has been a challenge. You know, she, that's one of the, those things that she has to grapple with that we can only help her so much with. That really is, uh, that's some of her weight that she has to carry. Um, you know, and it's uh, just a situation she was in. And that's something that I think that, that really relates to both foster care and adoption situations oftentimes is how have you dealt with, with that not knowing part? Because I know we've, we've had kids, um, we have kids who, who have a deep desire to know. If you're here, you're here because you're interested in helping kids. If you'd like to become one of the helping heroes of foster care, but you can't take kids into your home, consider supporting our mission. You can do that over at buymeacoffee.com slash foster care. You don't need an account. All you have to do is go over there, click a couple buttons and throw a couple dollars into the pot and it will help us pay for all the expenses in producing this podcast. We are not sponsored by any company or group or anything like that. And if you'd like to join us on that mission, we'd be glad to have you. How have you dealt with, with that not knowing part? Because I know we've, we've had kids, um, we have kids who, who have a deep desire to know, who want to know who they are, where they're, who their parents are, where they come from, and who aren't okay with just settling. I mean, and I, I don't blame them a bit, but they're not okay with settling for the pat answer that, you know, your parents made some mistakes and, and that's mm -hmm. just where it is. And, and it doesn't end there for them. They want to know something deeper, something more. They want to have that that understanding of, of who they're, they are and where they come from. Absolutely. And um, so I had a, a, a job that involved a lot of international travel and, and there was a uh, above average chance I would end up in China at some point. And I promised Katie, if that happened, that I would take her with me. Um, and she would not articulate this to you, but I think deep in her heart, she absolutely believed if she was walking down the street of this city of literally 5 million people, she would somehow stumble across her parents. And she would just know. And I think she always, you know, she'll, she will always have a little part of her. She understands it here in her head. I think she, you know, she understands the, um, you know, the, the practical situation. But, you know, let's face it. We all have that part of her heart that, you know, it's, there's always going to be a little gap there. Um, and she's always going to want to know a little bit more than we can tell her. Um, you know, Ruthie had an incident once. Um, Katie would go through these times where she would just be crying uncontrollably you know, I don't know if my birth parents are dead or they're alive or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't even know what they look like. And Ruthie put her up on the vanity in the bathroom and she's staring in the mirror. And it was like that scene out of um, The Lion King when Rafiki says, look harder. She said, look into the mirror. She says, that's your mother. That's your father. You're, you, that is who you are. You know, that, that's, and that's, you know, and it helps. And, um, but you're right. There's always going to be that, that question. And, um, I think it's always, you know, what I, what I tell people, anybody, anybody you meet, there's something that person's wrestling with. You're never going to understand with Katie. We, we always know that's going to be one of the things we just will never truly understand. That's not where we're from. That's not the way we were raised. Um, and it's neither better nor worse. It's just different. And you have to acknowledge that. And, um, just understand it's, you know, it, they have a right and let them understand that. So here's a, this is a classic. Um, Katie could have been more than a year or two, maybe three years old. And we're at some event and, um, you know, we're talking with some parents and someone said to, to Ruthie, are you going to tell Katie she's adopted? Now, you know, we're both, you know, basically blonde, blue hair, blonde, blue eyed, um, you know, 
Caucasians, I'm like, if I have to tell someone she's adopted, uh, they might have bigger problems to, de- to deal with than, than not knowing that. So, um, you know, we've been very open about that. And that's something I'm sure, you know, you, you guys probably deal with too, is people ask, you know, they, they, they sometimes feel like they have to whisper, but we've been very open with Katie. She knows the whole story. She knows about the one child policy. Um, she knows that we went over to get her and she knows the whole, she knows the whole story. Um, and I think that's, at least in our case, that's worked out fairly well that we've never had to try to cover anything up or, or, you know, and I think she just, frankly, I think she deserves the truth. And we've tried to, we've always tried to be upfront about that. Yeah. You know, I had a friend once, um, who kind of leaned in and whispered to me, is he half black? And I looked at him and out loud, I just said, really seriously. I said, no, man, he's half white. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the guy didn't know how to take it. And I don't think he, he didn't mean anything by it. Right. He didn't have the verbiage in his head around it. It wasn't something he was familiar with or comfortable talking about. But race has always been an issue amongst humans for whatever reason. How has that played into you guys' experience with your daughter? Uh, so the upside to it is um, we've tried to embrace the Chinese culture as much as we can, right? So, um you know, we, we've we've done research with Katie. She's done class projects in China. We go down to Chinatown for Chinese New Year every year to celebrate that moment. Um, that being said, uh, a good example is when the when COVID nineteen started hit, and it was being referred to as the Chinese virus. And you know, Katie came home. She was a senior in high school, and just kind of matter of factly said, "Yeah, some kids won't sit at my lunch table now because uh, I'm Chinese." And you know, I, you know, of course we wanted to get upset as parents and she just kind of waved her hand off and said, you know, don't worry about it. Um, you know, it's, that's just how some people are. So, you know, you, you, you kind of get used to that. Um, and she's aware of it. She knows, you know, she obviously knows that she's, she's Asian. Um, but there have been times when people will, I will say we'll walk into places, you know, cause my son for, well, I'd say for better, or for worse, but for worse looks a lot like me. Um, so we'll walk into a restaurant and there's, you know, my wife, you know, Caucasian blue eyes and I'll walk in Caucasian blue eyes. There's my son, he's blondish blue eyes. And then there's our daughter and you'll see people kind of their, their heads will move and they'll stop and look at Katie for an extra second and try to compute what's going on. Um, but, um, you know, I always figure that's, if people have questions, I'm happy to answer them. I'm happy to talk to them about it. But, um, if they have a problem, it really is their problem. It's, it's, uh, it's not ours. Yeah, that's been always been our our take on it. I know more so Amanda than I ha, has dealt with that in the past because I am just ambiguously brown enough that I, I can pass for just about anything. <laughs> and so people don't give me trouble with any of my kids typically. That and I think the fact that I kind of have a decent like hate me face <laughs> and people don't come over and give me too much trouble if I feel like I'm in a place where I don't want to deal with them. Right. But Amanda's dealt with that because a lot of the kids we've had come through our home and the, through the foster system. And some of the kids that we've adopted, you know, have either are either black or mixed heritage and, mm-hmm. and they look different, you know, and she is as, as white as you can be, I think technically legally speaking without I'm a little pale. Yeah. <clears throat> a little just a little, you know, her, her heritage is, is, uh, well, her maiden name is McClanahan. Okay. So it's not hard to figure out where she comes right. from. Right. <laughs> I get it. I so, get it. So when we have a, a young child who's, who's, you know, black with her, that, that she's out with them, people will, will oftentimes take mm-hmm. the time to really stare. I've because, had a few comments and. Yep. Yep. Had a few people who had to be kind of put in their place, but that that's always been something that, that I've seen, foster parents and adoptive parents alike need to at least be conscious of, you know, because we can't all pretend like it doesn't exist. It exists. Right. I, I could not agree more. And, um, you know, we, when we were just about done with the paperwork for Katie, we started to consider a third adoption. And and frankly, we just, we just didn't have the money at that point. Um, cause it was a pretty, uh, expensive process. Um, and, you know, at first, even when we we were looking to, to adopt the first time, someone said, "Well, you're going to go to you're going to go to Russia probably, or you know, and get you know blonde hair, blue eyed." And I said, "I said I already have one of those, you know. <laughs> it's time to it's time to get another." We tell everybody uh, with our kids, we made one and we bought one, and uh, just like food and clothes, it's easier and cheaper to make your own, 
Um, it's a bigger challenge to go out and, and go the other route. Uh, but I said to Ruthie, I said, I think, it, you know, let's, let's go somewhere else. Like how about Guatemala or how about Mexico or, you know, something like that. Um, you know, let's uh, there's, if we're going to do it there, I don't want there to be any doubt that people want to have that conversation. I, you know, I, um, I was working, I was running digital media for a small media company when we were going through the process with Katie. So I, I documented the entire trip and actually then converted that into a very small book. Um, all those notes I took. Um, Cause I think it's important to have those conversations since your point, um, especially the, the race thing. I, I, um, you know, we've had people say, uh, you know, gee, what, you know, couldn't you get a white kid? Couldn't you get a white child? And, you know, I, I'm like, that really never came into mind. So this is something, Jason, I mean, I don't know if you guys have run into this, but I'll, I'll share a story with you. Um, we were, I would say we we're about halfway through the paperwork with Katie and we were still doing fertility. We had, you know, Ruthie wanted to give it one more shot, which I said, is fine. If we end up with three kids, we end up with three. Um, and she sit in the fertility clinic and, uh, we were, I said, we were kind of progressing with Katie and people were like, some of the other women were asking her like, what, what's that like? How's it going? And, um, she said, they said, well, you know, what's going to happen? And they said, uh, Ruthie said, well, my husband's going to go, Ruthie stayed home just to be clear. Like Ruthie and Noah stayed home when it came time to get Katie. And I went with my mother-in-law and my stepmother to go get Katie. And Ruthie said, like, yeah, my husband's going to go get her. And some of the women started crying. And I said, why were they overwhelmed? But they, they said, well, they a couple of them said their husbands said, I won't raise a kid if they don't look like me. And I had to tell you, Jason, of all the stories I heard during the process, that was the one that absolutely stopped me. And maybe this is because I, I don't know, maybe I, I don't think enough, but that never occurred to me. Like I never thought I couldn't love a child because they didn't look like me. Frankly, I, I'm sorry. My son looks like me. I wish he had a better gene pool to draw from, but you know, it is what it is. I know the struggle, <laughs> right? but um, that when Ruthie told me that story, I was really kind of stunned by it, but that is to your point. Some people think like that. They don't want it. You know, it's not their, uh, Frankly, I've had a number of people who have gotten remarried to someone of the same race, and they'll say that the stepchildren, well, they'll never really be my kids. And I don't, you know, I grew up, um, you know, my mother passed when I was young, and uh, my, you know, my father got remarried. Um, and, you know, that that's your family. So to me, that really was never a thing, but that is the kind of thing you deal with. Um, and I, I, you know, I, and I've thought about those other husbands who said that to their wives. And part of me says, well, I wish I could talk to them. But the other part of me thinks if they feel that if that's where their head is at, I don't think there's any I could say to change your mind. And frankly, I would say it's just their loss, but it's not just their loss. There's a child out there, you know, who missed an opportunity to family because somebody had those beliefs. And I think that's that truly that's truly the tragedy. You know, I recently had a uh, conversation with a guy that I work with and it was amongst all the racial tensions happening in America and some of the conversations we're having. And, and he mm -hmm. says to me, I don't think racism really exists anymore. Oh, At which point I almost choked. And I think he was probably sorry for having mentioned that to me because he got a conversation after that, that I didn't allow him to not believe that it exists right. anymore. And I explained to him, I'm like, look, dude, you're a blonde haired you know, redheaded guy over here, right? Mm -hmm. You live in a rural place in the middle of Missouri. Of course, racism doesn't exist in your life, but let me tell you where I've seen it because we're in the same rural area. Right. And people will make assumptions about who I am based on what I look like. And their assumptions are always wildly different um, <laughs> because I have been called every racial slur with hate and malice in the, in the voice that you can imagine. And, um, and I've, I've been told to go back to my own country a couple of times, actually, at this point now, too, okay. which I always laugh at because uh, the, the first guy who really pulled that one off with me was was a guy who approached me right after I had gotten out of the military. Mm -hmm. I just left the military. and He's telling me to go back to my own country. I was young and full of piss and vinegar and all those great things. And right. yeah, fortunately, he had the good sense to leave and not stay because I think that would have probably turned out with me doing something stupid that would probably have impacted right. my life later on. 
but it exists. It just does. And it's something that I think we have to be conscious of and aware of and have those conversations with the people around us that, man, there are just some people who are, who are just mad at folks because they look different. Well, so here, I'll take that a step further for you. Someone, when we got the pictures of Katie, uh, they, when they, they connected us with her and said, this is your girl, they looked at the pictures. It even hurts me to tra- to share this story, but they said, oh, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have those really slanty eyes. You should be happy about that. I, what do you say to something like that? I mean, but it, that's, that was the view was that she didn't look too Chinese. So maybe that was okay. That was better. Um, you know, and I, I, having, you know, grown up in kind of a multicultural town or if you will, or in high school and college experience, um, I think anybody who says that the racism doesn't exist or there's not even race is an issue, if you want to call it racism, you're not paying attention. And, you know, it's, it's, um, we've seen it enough with Katie, like I said, before she got here and after we got here, um, the majority of people, like they embraced it. You know, she's been treated by our family, um, like anybody else, you know, my side of the family and, and Ruthie's, um, as one of our own because she is, but, um, you know, she, she's going to have to deal with that. And I've, I've told her, you know, we've told her that numerous times that that's something you're going to carry forward. Um, cause you'll always be Asian. There's nothing going to change that. And, uh, people are going to, that's one of the things people always associate with you. You are Asian. Um, and that's going to come with whatever stereotypes it comes with. So, um, you know, to your, I think, you know, to your point, when it comes up, um, I'm always, happy to have a conversation about it. You know, people ask me, well, why did you adopt internationally? Why didn't you adopt domestically? Um, look, uh, you know, I, I have nothing to hide and uh, it's total transparency. Um, and if someone asks anything about Katie, uh, you know, I'm happy to have the conversation because I think the only way we're going to try to, we'll never get, we won't get past it in our lifetime, certainly, you know, and maybe our kids lifetime, but the only way we're going to start to do that is by having those kind of conversations. And to your point and not having them end in a way that we do something we regret later on. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately for me in that moment, I had a little boy who was probably about four years old in the car with me and he was just getting out and uh as my mindset was shifting from healthy to unhealthy, I happened to glance down and see his face looking at me like he saw something was going sideways and something yep. felt wrong. And it gave me the feedback I needed to go ahead and pull that back. Just, yep. but those, yeah, those are hard moments, you know? Yeah. And so if, if you go back to the beginning, what made adoption seem like the right option for, for you guys? And, and I mean, international adoption as well, because I have heard so many people say, why, why do people adopt all these kids from other countries? There's so many kids here who need a home. And, and while I agree that that is true, there are a lot of kids here in the States who need a home. Um, that hundred percent true, but you know, Amanda and I had actually looked at international adoption before we started any of the foster care or adoption stuff. Mm-hmm. And for us, it was cost prohibitive. We said, mm-hmm. yeah, nope. Ain't got the money for that right now. And so we ended up going down a different road, but as soon as we started looking at it, it was something we really felt called to do. Mm-hmm. And is has that been part of your experience? Was there a calling there? Yeah. I, once we, once we had the conversation that we know, we, you know, we've known, we had conversations before we even got married about having a family. We felt very strongly as again, because my wife comes from a line of only children that she wanted to have the bigger family. Of course I come from a bigger family and I told her, it's not what you think. This is not father knows best, but she insisted. <laughs> so um, yeah. And, and I, so Again, a full transparency, um, our senior pastor had adopted domestically and internationally at the time. Um, and the his wife said, with the domestic adoption, which was first, he said, she said, every time someone knocked at the door, my heart was in my throat. They were coming to take him. They, they, they had changed their mind. Um, and that really stuck with us because, you know, I, I what I said was, I saw the trauma we went through with the miscarriages and they were, there were, I'm not kidding, five or six of them. And you know, when you go to, you go through a miscarriage, it's like, you know, it's like losing a child. You are losing a child. Um, and that's just too much trauma. I couldn't imagine putting us through that again um, for an adoption kind of being pulled or rescinded, whatever you will. 
Um, and I think we got, we kind of got confirmation for that at one of our travel meetings with the agency. We were speaking with a young couple who had twice um, found a young lady who was pregnant and was willing to give their child up for adoption. And both times, you know, they put the, they put the young lady up in an apartment they paid for her medical care. They, you know, they took care of her, you know, um, took care of her, all her medical expenses and whatnot. And then once she gave birth, both times, they, the, the young lady said, I changed my mind. And what they said is, look, you can have any agreement signed you want. You can have it notarized and, and codified. But at the end of the day, most courts are going to look and say, no, nope, it's the mother, you know, end of story. Um, and I, and they were like, look, the fact that we've sunk $60,000 in those two pregnancies isn't the half of it. It's the fact that we had the nursery ready and, you know, baby showers and the name picked out and we're imagining our first Christmas together. And both times the plug got pulled and they said, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, they wanted to make sure it went smoothly and it and it actually happened. Um, and that's again, that's one of the reasons we landed on China, because we knew for for good or ill. The, the trains run on time in China. And when they say this is the process, all the research we showed said the process runs exactly as it is said it's going to run. And that was our experience. So um, once we kind of started to go down that road and did the research and we felt, you know, we didn't feel we could go through the trauma of it not working out. Um, and, uh, you know, China, and to your point, that the, the cost is not, um, can't be ignored. It is a significant investment. Um, if you were expense, whatever you want to call it. In fact, that's again, that's why when we started looking at Guatemala, it had from the time it took us about two years to get the paperwork done for Katie. And from the time we started the paperwork to the time we started looking at into Guatemala, the price in Guatemala doubled. Wow. And yeah. So I just said, look, you know, I think two's gonna have to be it. And what I said is, um, you know, this way we can play man-to-man defense. We don't have to switch to zone. It's two on two. And uh, we could control the situation a little bit. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of how we went down that path. And I, 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 don't know, I don't know how it would have gone if we had gone domestic or gone to the country. But I do know for our situation, and I think it's important to say everybody's situation is different. Um, and I would say, you know, your experience is the right experience. If you feel like uh, once, you know, once we really got knee deep into it, I felt more and more confident we had done the right thing. We had chosen the right path um, and, you know, absolutely no regrets whatsoever. I, I would not say it's for everybody, just as I'm sure you would say, you know, uh, foster care is not for everybody. Um, it's, you know, certain people, it's the right fit. And it, for us, absolutely 100% the right choice. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. Yeah, I agree. And knowing what that right choice is for you and your family is really Mm -hmm. important. And not caring too awful much about what other people seem to think you should be doing is a, is a valuable skill set to have. Yeah. Well, that, like I said, it's nobody, nobody knows your situation. They may know most of it. They may know some of it, but they don't know all of it. And um, I would never presume, you know, I, I looked at, we had about 12 or 13 families in our group that went over to China. And um, one of the last things this is it's kind of crazy. One of the last events you have in China, they put you in this massive room and there must've been 250 people, which shows you what kind of an industry adoption was at the time. And um, I looked around and I thought every single one of these people has a different story. They have a different reason for being here. They made their choice for their own personal reasons. Um, and I'm sure, you know, for all of them it was, the, you know, they felt it was the right thing. So you know, I, I, I can't, I couldn't be worried about, um, you know, I couldn't be worried about what other people were thinking. I knew what was right for my family, um, for my son, my daughter and my wife. I knew that I just felt like we were doing the right thing. And, um, you know, to your point, if someone doesn't like it, I'm, 
one, I'd love to have a conversation as to why you don't like it. But two, it really, it isn't, you know, you're, you're liking or disliking. It isn't going to have an impact on, on what's happening in our lives. Absolutely. What's well, the saying I recently heard? Um, other people's opinion is none of your business. You know, you know, someone else's opinion of you is none of your business. And that's right. I'd that's love to keep it that way. Yep. So you guys, you guys looked at this and you stepped right in and, and you got a, a kid from, you know, who needed a home and brought her into your home and, and raised her as your own. What mm-hmm. have been some of the significant struggles you've seen come through other than your typical, I mean, yeah, terrible twos have their moments and, and toddlers have their, their places and teenagers have their struggle points. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, with the added trauma of adoption, because, and I don't say that in a, in a negative way, so to speak, as if like you're adding that trauma, but anytime a child is given up by someone or, or for whatever reason has to be pulled from their home, mm-hmm. you know, adoption leaves trauma in their brain. It just is part of it. So what have you seen that manifest in you guys' experience as? Yeah. So there were, I, I take, there's two answers to that. One is the physical part. Katie was really sick when we got her. Um, and um, she was really petite, very small. Um, and by the time she came home within the first week or two, she had pneumonia. In fact, while we were there, she was running a fever. And uh, if you think going to the doctor with your kids is traumatic, I want you to imagine going into here. I'll tell you, I'll, I, have, I have time for a story. Here's a story. So she's sick. I mean, sick. The doctor is with us, has done a couple of things. She's getting worse. Um, we had a friend, believe it or not, who was actually in Guangzhou at the time. Uh, he owned a restaurant near us, and he happened to be in their visiting family because we were there during the Chinese New Year. And he said, Carl goes, I'll take you to the hospital. Best in Guangzhou. Okay, great. We walk into this hospital, and the lobby looks like an old bank lobby, marble from, ceil- from floor to ceiling, two stories high. And they're literally, it looks like a bank. There are tellers at the, uh, and, and there's you know, Chinese uh, letters above it. Um, and that's for which department you want to go to. So each line is 15, 20 deep. John grabs me. He says, you have your passport. I'm like, yes, you, have, you never leave your passport when you're American in China. He says, hold up your passport. I held up my passport and the Red Sea parted and everybody moved out of the way. And I went right to the front. And the woman said, what's the problem? He's translating. They take us up to the pediatrics. And um, th- the first thing they do is they hand me the thermometer. I'm like, wait, you want me to take the temperature? Isn't there a trained medical professional who's better capable of doing this? Um, but, you know, they, long story short, they end up giving us some antibiotics. And um, so it was, it was rough. We get her home. A week or two later, she develops pneumonia. Um, so, you know, that whole, the, the medical thing was a challenge from the, from the jump. Um, on the other side of it, you know, getting her home with the emotional part, um, remember, in Chinese orphanages, they rarely hold the children. What they do is they'll put them in the crib and they'll throw the bottles in the crib and let them feed themselves. So a lot of the kids get bottle rot in their teeth because they're just, you know, kids will keep the bottles in their mouth. Um, Katie must have been held for some reason because she didn't seem to have that problem. But that being said, she wasn't held a lot. So, of course, I got her. And from the minute they handed over to me, I wouldn't let her go. So I was holding on to her and I was like a crack dealer at that point. Like I was giving her hugs that she had not had for 15 months. So she, you talk about not wanting to be unattached. She was ferocious about that. In fact, one of our first nights home, I'm holding on a Katie on the couch and Noah comes over to see her. He, so he leans his head on my shoulders. I'm holding her. Her eyes got wild. She shrieked and she lunged right at him and she just attacked him because I was hers, you know? Um, and that took, then when I went back to work and left Katie with her mother, Katie looked at her like, who are you? You know, what is, where's, where's the guy who's been hugging me for two weeks? Um, so that took a while to get over. And Katie has been, we've always been trying to be very cognizant of um, her concern about, be, you know, about being abandoned, because that's a real thing. Um, you know, when, when we dropped Noah at Sunday school for the first time, he had, he looked at us, he waved, walked away, went into Sunday school with Katie. I had to go into Sunday school with her for six months and just sit in the room with her. So she knew I was there and she could see me. Um, so that, that was a real, that was, a that was one of the many things that was different about between raising the two of them. 
but she had some real issues with um, being abandoned and uh, not being, you know, the detachment type of thing. Um, and that, you know, that's, I think that's been mitigated, obviously, you know, she's 19 now. So it's a, she's a, she's a young lady, but um, that's always, that's always been a thing, you know, trying to, you know, be cognizant of what is her reaction going to be if I'm away. Um, when I was working um, a couple of years ago, I was working where I, I was away from home for a couple of days a week. I'd go down on Mondays and come back on Fridays. And Katie was 12 or 14 at the time, but every week she would give me a different stuffed animal to take down with her, down with me. Cause, and I think that was part of that, you know, part of that adoption thing about being separated from me. And I think that, you know, so it's different, um, but it's still definitely, still definitely a thing. A lot of those stories about kids who aren't held very much in orphanages come back and are the kind of the impetus for, for cases of rad. I don't know if you're familiar with rad reactive mm. attachment disorder. Mm-mm. It's something that happens in the brain of kids who are, who are not, who don't learn how to have healthy attachment at the appropriate age. Mm-hmm. And it can turn a couple different ways, but it can turn really significant to the point of psychopathy, you know, Um, it it can really damage kids because they never learned to make that healthy attachment. And it sounds like you may have, you know, just from my, my little bit of knowledge about child psychology, it it sounds like you may have caught her in, in some of the last moments of her ability to learn to build that true attachment, you know, in that last year or so where she was able to build that Mm -hmm. and gave her that ability to create a healthy attachment. Yeah. And that, you know, we, we, you know, we, made sure that we were spending a lot of time with her and then get her used to the idea that we could be away, but we would come back. And, you know, you, you, you try to work through that. Um, you know, so I, one thing I probably should have mentioned, I mentioned like some of the kids don't make it, but some of the kids don't make it in the orphanages over there. And part of the reason is you'll have two or three kids in a crib. They'll throw all three bottles in there. And if a, one kid is bigger or stronger, they'll take the bottle away from the other kid. And that's why, like one of the workers said to us, um, somebody must have paid attention to Katie because she's so small. It's clear that if someone was bigger, sure, they could have taken the bottle away from her. They must have, someone must have taken the time to make sure she got fed because kids literally starve to death in the orphanages because the other babies take their bottle away. So, um, and I can tell you the first, so that's another thing that gets me to think of this. You asked about things we were dealing with. The first year or so she was home, she would gorge herself. She would fill her mouth so much with food. She was like a chipmunk. She literally couldn't get any more in. And then she would literally make herself sick because she kept, she would eat, eat, eat until she was sick to her stomach. And she would just over, because there just wasn't a lot of food, um, you know, at the orphanage. So that's something we kind of had to get her to regulate. Um, And she was really skinny. Um, when we took her down to the children's hospital, when we first got her back, they said, look, we're going to give you a month, but if she doesn't come back with some weight gain, we're going to have to put her on a special feeding program, um, because she's clearly that far underweight. Um, but you know, she came to us with, um, four teeth and like four tufts of hair. And once she started eating and getting vitamins, all of a sudden she had all of her teeth and all of her hair, like literally almost overnight. So, um, you know, we were, we were blessed that that kind of took a, took the right turn. Yeah. It sounds like you guys were there at the right moment, the right mm-hmm. place and time, you know, um, have you seen, and you said she's what, 17, 18, 19, now? 19, 19. So how, how has that manifested as she went through the teen years? Because we've had a few teens. We have a few teens. We've <laughs> seen a lot of teen stories and teens are notoriously difficult to, to, to take care of because of all the, the struggles that go on in the brain in that age anyways, and the struggles with society and fitting in and all that. But when you add that extra layer of being adopted mm-hmm. and then add on the fact that she came from a place where she wasn't maybe well taken care of or, or paid close attention to and had a lot of other traumas in that background, how have you seen that manifest in her life or have you? Um, well, that's interesting. Um, so a couple of things I would say factors that played into it. One was, uh, you know, her, her brother's four years older than her. So when she entered high school, he was off to the Naval Academy. So he was gone. So she kind of became the only child for the first time. Um, so part of what she was wrestling with in her early teen years was her brother not being there. Um, and she would never, you know, freely admit it, but, um, you know, she missed him. 
Um, and that was, in, so that was, that was a factor. Uh, we were concerned about the whole, um, how adoption might, her, you know, being adopted might have an impact on relationships, especially, you know, looking for boyfriends and that, because we know that that could, you know, that could really, you know, go in a lot of bad ways. Um, but I will say she, so she had one, I would say serious, as serious she can be as a sophomore, junior in high school boyfriend. And, uh, you know, she's the one who broke it off because she said, you know what, uh, this is just, isn't working out for me. And she did it in a very healthy way. Um, you know, and I thought she just proved to me that she'd kind of matured and was able to handle that type of thing. Um, I think she, I think having her brother kind of paved the way and see how he handled a lot of things gave her a playbook to go by. So things like peer pressure about drugs or drinking or, or sex or whatever, I think she had had, um, you know, I think she was getting some good counsel from her brother on that. And in fact, um, this is my wife loves to tell this story. Her must've been beginning of her senior year. Some young man was having a conversation with her and said, um, Hey, I think we should hang out. And oh, she's like, Oh, great. Maybe we, we could see a movie or something. He's like, Oh no, I was thinking more like friends with benefits type of thing where you come over and, you know, and she was like, no, I think I'll take a pass on that one. Well, she told her brother about that and um, he came home and decided he would show up to the high school in full uniform and uh, just pointed the kid and said, are you so-and-so come with me and went and had a little uh, come to Jesus meeting with them <laughs> to kind of <laughs> tell him where the lines are being drawn. Um, you know, and I, th that, but that's, you know, the fact that she's the one who did that, it would have been easy uh, for her to kind of draw that line. Something else, Jason, I think that this is, I think, has nothing to do with her being adopted, but she never got on social media at all in high school. Um, in fact, it really wasn't until late in her senior year, she got an Instagram mostly just so she could chat with some of her girlfriends from her gymnastics team. But, you know, she didn't get bogged down in Facebook or, or Snapchat, which was big at the time. She never got bogged down in any of that stuff. So I think in some ways, um, you know, that was, that was good. She's also, uh, and I don't, I wish I could tell you where this came from. She's a very pragmatic thinker. Um, she's not overly emotional when she thinks of things. She tends to think in a very linear fashion. And when and her brother does as well. And my son's take on relationships in high school was that there's too much drama. It's just not worth the time. I've got things I want to accomplish. And if I get bogged, because I see what my, my friends get involved with, it's not worth it. And I think Katie heard that and saw that, then saw it happening in her own peer group and said, you know what? He's right. This isn't worth it. Um, so I think in some ways that, you know, that kind of helped her steer clear a lot of the, a lot of the drama that I think um, other parents of teens have had to deal with. Wow. I'll, I'll say that I learned a lot of things from my, my own sister who was a, a couple years older than I was, but I mostly learned how she got caught. And I didn't do it that way. Anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, people have asked me, like, my, you know, my sister was the notorious troublemaker in when I was growing up. And someone said, like, why didn't you get in more trouble? I said, because I saw what she did. I saw what it caused and thought, that's eh, not worth it. <laughs> you know? I wasn't that smart. I just saw what my <laughs> sister did. I saw how she got caught and I avoided those methodologies. Right. Right. <laughs> well, I, you know, so. This is again, this is about having the brother sister relationship was really strong. And Katie saw, uh, by the time Noah got to his junior year, he had started to um, put himself on a path to get to the Naval Academy. And he knew what that was going to take. Um, and he knew it was at stake. So she watched him do that. And, you know, by the time he got to his senior year and it became clear that this was really a possibility, um, you know, he started to weigh things like, you know, people getting a house for prom weekend, for example. And he would weigh, like, look, is it really worth me being caught with a bunch of underage drinkers when it could, you know, it could blow the whole shot at, at an academy? It's not. And so he made those kind of decisions. And she saw not just him do those things, but she also saw the thought process that he went through. Um, and she, you know, she started to put that in her own mind. By the time she got into those years. Now, bear in mind, she's watching her brother and she's seeing the, tri you know, the tribulations he went through at the academy, but also the opportunities. That's when, that's when um, that military service became, um, became a goal of hers as well. 
So she saw what her brother was going through. She saw the opportunities and she also knew what she would have to, I'll say sacrifice, but avoid in her high school years to make that a real possibility. Um, so again, because she's a linear thinker and very pragmatic, she's thinking, okay, I could go to this party where people are smoking and drinking, but you know, when I'm in front of a um, congressional uh, panel and they say, oh, you know, for, for the nomination and they say, oh, I see you're caught with a DUI or, you know, smoking cigarettes. How am I going to answer that? How am I going to, you know, how am I going to clear myself of that? And she, um, she kind of put the, uh, the long-term objective and use that as a filter for an awful lot of stuff that she did. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways that having her brother go through it and help her kind of see that as a possibility and eventually the path that she's on now, um, you know, I think that really helped her avoid a lot of the, the, the pitfalls that the teenagers tend to run into. So she's aiming for the military herself now? She's at the Air Force Academy Prep School. Um, and uh, she received three nominations from there to go to the academy. So as long as knock wood, she keeps her grades up uh, and doesn't get herself in any trouble. Um, she'll be a uh, part of the air force Academy class of 2025. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, so she, she, it's, she, she here, this is how this is, you know, people say your kids are different. Well, of course they are. Cause you know, one's a boy, um, you know, he's a, he's a blonde blue haired, uh, uh, bl- blonde and bl- blue-eyed uh, boy who's you know our biological son and then our Chinese daughter but um, my son applied to the Naval Academy applied to no other academies did not apply to RTC wasn't interested he said if it's not the Naval Academy I'm going to go play football somewhere Katie said I'll go to any academy that takes me and if they don't take me I'm going to go to RTC like she was dead set on that um, so she you know she did the work and um you know, th- so here, this, this is, I think, indicative of the type of thinker she is. Um, she was not, to be honest, she wasn't like enamored with her Girl Scout experience. It was okay. She loved the project. So she got the bronze award and the silver award. And I think all things being equal, she probably would have bailed after doing her silver award project. But she said, I think getting the gold award puts me in a better position to get a nomination, a congressional nomination, potentially appointment to an academy. So she went through and did it. And um, because of where she wanted to be, she said, I want it to be for veterans. Um, And she put in a lot of legwork. I see a lot of the projects kids do, which are fine, but you can tell it's something they knew somebody and they just went and did this project and they're done. Katie said, I want to help veterans. And the first couple of things she came up with, well, you can put a plaque here or you can plant flowers here. And she said, that's not helping. There are too many homeless veterans out there. That's who I want to help. So long story short, she comes across a philanthropist here in Philadelphia who had bought the Veterans Comfort Home, which and was in the process of refurbishing it to make it a transitional homeless shelter for uh, female veterans. Um, And Katie went down there and Dana said, you can have the whole family room. And Katie said, I'm going to build a library. I'm going to build an activity center for these for these women. And she did. And that, uh, you know, so she was able to kind of tie her passion for the military um, you know, with, you know, the Girl Scout award and really, and I think that would have, would not have happened, frankly, if she didn't have that long-term goal in mind. And again, it all ties together because of where her brother was and what she saw her brother was on the path to achieve. I think that really helped her make a lot of those, those kind of smart decisions. Well, that brings about two thoughts. The first one is, and I just have to wonder how many boxes of Girl Scout cookies you did eat over the years. Because <laughs> <laughs> the ones with peanut butter are the best ones, trust yes. me, I know. No argument there. <laughs> and second, it's I just find it really interesting that a girl who was a homeless girl who was found in a place of need has come full circle to being a girl who's helping homeless people who are in a place of need. At, yeah, Jay, you hit it really. Um, so Katie, one thing Katie did uh, with the women at church is they did these blankets. I think they're called twist blankets, but they, you know, they put together these blankets um, and Katie did a bunch of them, but then she brought home some of the extra material. Mrs. Bernard said, her, sure, take it. And she made, gosh, half dozen, eight, 10 blankets. And what she would do is when she came home from gymnastics, she comes through Trenton, New Jersey on her way home from practice. There were only, always homeless people there because people had to stop. It was a very long traffic light. So she started making blessings bags just because, and she would put one of these blankets in them and she would, she would wait to the, the person would come up and she'd hand them the blanket. Um, and I do think that that's 
um, I think she has a spot in her heart for that. You know, she, um, you know, she knows where she came from. She knows one of the reasons that she is where she is because, you know, somebody didn't have the, uh, the means to take care of her. And I think that really touched her heart. And it's something that she has a, a very strong feeling about. Um, so, you know, on her way home from gymnastics, she's helping the homeless. And the fact that she is able to do the home, you know, tie her, her, um, her respect for the military and where her brother was, where her grandfathers were, where she wanted to be to a project that could help people. Um, yeah, I really think, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction for her. And I think there's, there's, those are not um, those are not dotted line relationships. Those are very real connections that she made. And I can only imagine that a large part of her ability to learn that and to become that person comes a lot through what she experienced in life in your home. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we've we've always made service a part of that's part of what we do, right? So when we do uh, when our church says they're not home alone Thanksgiving dinner, the kids went down there and served. You know, we went down and served the meals. Um, you know, that's that's part of that's just part of what we um, we've always we've always believed in that. You know, the respect for the military comes from both grandfathers serving during Korea, one by choice, you know, one by invitation of the of the military. Um, so, yeah, they they've definitely they've definitely seen that at home and they've seen the respect that we've shown to the military and the and the empathy we've shown to people who, you know, uh, who are homeless or just struggling to, you know, for food security or whatever the case may be. And, um, you know, I'm, I have to say, I'm pleased that both of them have kind of seen that as, as something that they, you know, they need to, they need to be a part of. Well, it sounds like you and your wife have done a wonderful job of taking the young girl who needed a place and not only creating a place, but creating a place where you could then raise a young girl and build in empathy and love and kindness and the sorts of messages that a lot of kids don't, don't get even, even kids who are born into typically privileged mm -hmm. American homes and you've done a wonderful job. What, what's been kind of your inspiration for that over the years? Because I know that, that the journey is tough and it has its bumps. Mm -hmm. And so when, when you find those bumps, what's been the fuel to, to keep you going? That's a good one. Um, well, you know, my faith always plays a role in that. And, um, you know, that's kind of, the, that's one of the bedrocks that, that, that I kind of rest on. Um, as a parent, I guess I look back and there's, there's the good and bad from your own, own life that you take with you. Right. And the good you want to repeat and the bad you want to help people avoid. Um, and that's kind of what I've, uh, as a, at least as a father, what I've tried to impart on my kids is um, here's some things that worked well for me. And here's some, I wouldn't say regrets, but here's some things I wish I had thought of when I was your age and to get them to think about, um, you know, what is the impact on your long-term life and what is the impact on the people around you? Um, you know, what you're doing, what people see and how that lands on them. Um, you know, that's always been a real thing. Uh, and I've tried to try to as much as I can, um, get them to think like that. And, um, you know, and, I, and to try to, to try to give them the life that I think I wish every kid could have. Um, not that it's full of stuff, but it's full of certainly love and certainly full of experiences. Um, you know, our son was on the phone with us just this weekend. He was, um, he's been, he's at power school down in uh, Goose Creek, South Carolina. They've been locked down since he got there in November because of COVID. And they finally got out one evening this past week and he called just to let us know, Hey, I'm out with actual human beings. Um, and he said, you know, he goes, he goes, I've said this before, he goes, but I want to say it again. Thank you for everything you've done for me. And I, you know, I'm thinking maybe he means that generically, but he said, for all the experiences you gave Katie and I, you know, we went to the Grand Canyon, we went to Niagara Falls, we went hiking, we went whitewater rafting, um, you know, and he, I can remember, you know, he had said to me before, there were times when he was a kid, you know, he didn't get a cell phone too, it was in high school. And meanwhile, a bunch of his friends had iPhones when they were in grade school. And he said, you know, I, it wasn't always about the stuff you gave me, but it was the opportunities you gave me. And that's something that I, you know, that my, was always a driving motivation for me was to give our kids, expose our kids to everything the world has to offer. And that's why Katie landed on the Air Force Academy thing, because she saw 
her brother showed her that that was a, that was an option. And she's, and, and I think, um, and a very real option. It was, it was possible. Um, and that's what we try to impart upon her. It's like, yeah, look, it doesn't matter where you started. It matters where you end up and where you're headed. So um, she, you know, I think that's, I feel like I'm going around a circle on that question, but that really is, to me, it's always been about, um, you know, keeping, keeping the front and center that your priority is your kids. Um, so this is, so I'll go off on this tangent for just a second, if I can. Um, what, as soon as Ruth became pregnant with Noah, um, I realized that I was no longer the most important person in my life. And I think I see some parents who maybe, ha- maybe might say that, but that they're maybe not committed to that idea. And maybe it's not the right idea. That's just the way I look at it. Um, and it's not that my kids get everything, but that their well-being, their growth, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, that's my number one priority. And that's the first question I ask on anything is what is the impact on my kids? Um, and I think if you kind of operate from that standpoint and not about giving your kids more stuff, but about what you're doing and how it has an impact on what they're developing into the adults they're going to be and the lives you're going to have. I think that's a good filter and a good, um, this kind of a good benchmark to use. You know, one of the dad's groups I'm in, somebody had at one point said, uh, put up a post that said kids spell love differently than most of us. They spell it T I M E. Yep. And I know that's a struggle for most of us. You know, I, I work a, a 60 hour a week job. Mm-hmm. Um, I have five kids that, in, that live in my house. Um, that's the ones that are still here. Right. So we've had some, we've had a couple move on, but you know, we, we have a busy life. We, we do foster care. Um, mm-hmm. and we, we put out this podcast. I probably put 20 hours of work in a week into this as well. And our life is so busy. And I know that's one of the struggles I have just trying to do all the things that I, that I feel called to do and still find that time. And I'm constantly reminded of how important it is because you know, that's, that's where you build relationship where, where kids begin to feel safe. I a hundred percent agree. I can tell you, Jason, um, in that my son is 23 now, and I think I've golfed once in 23 years and I used to golf several times a summer or whatever. Uh, and I just said, that's not that important. And, uh, I told my wife, like we were talking about the yard and, you know, we've got these people in our neighborhood, um, that, that these guys, that's what they do. Like Saturday is yard work. You cut the grass, you fertilize the grass, you trim this up. And I said, listen, I'd rather be the one who's coaching my kids baseball team or softball team than to be the one whose yard looks perfect. So my yard has looked like crap for 20 some years, but, um, you know, I coached my son in football. I coached him in baseball. I coached Katie in basketball. I coached her in softball and the experiences we had there. Unbelievable. You know, my son and I went on a lot of boy scout camping trips with my son and we didn't spend a lot of time together because the dads are in one spot, the boys are in another, but, um, you know, just to be there and be a part of it. We did, um, we did the Philmont high adventure hike when he was about 14. Um, and I have to tell you, Jason, I hate exercise, like with a burning passion. <laughs> My exercise passion is to not exercise. I'm in so, the same club, man. I get so, it. So to, you know, to hike 110 miles at, you know, and up a 10,000 foot mountain, um, you know, with 45 pounds on your back, you know, that was, for me, that was way out of the comfort zone, but you know, it meant so much to him. Um, and I share, share a little story. So when my son was five or six, I guess five or six, my alma mater's football team started to get good. And we started talking about football and he became really interested. And we went to a game that fall and then they ended up going to a bowl game. So we went to the bowl game in Detroit and we had just a phenomenal experience. The next year they go to another bowl game. And I told my dad, I said, yeah, we're going to Mobile, Alabama for this bowl game. He goes, well, boy, didn't you do that already? I said, dad, I'll tell you what, the next time my son is seven years old and wants to spend a weekend with me, I'll do it then. Like, this is it, right? This is the chance. This is the moment. Um, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't give up any of those experiences with them to, you know, whether it's at a football game or, you know, um, I took both my kids on a work trip when I was working for a trade association. We went to Monterey, which you and I talked about earlier. Um, you know, we went to the Monterey Aquarium and, you know, those are just, 
I think that makes all the difference. That just makes all the difference. And this is something else I mentioned, Jason. My wife and I were talking about this quite a bit lately. Um, so we're at the point now where, you know, we could retire tomorrow as long as retirement lasted no more than 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we have a habit of spending money years before we earn it. And you know what? That's okay. Because, um, you know, we, we, when we took the trip to Arizona, we went as a family, we took two weeks. Uh, we hiked Walnut Canyon. We hiked Grand Canyon. We did a float down the Colorado river. We hiked Zion. We did it. You know, we did it all. It happened a month after I lost my job and we had planned this trip and we said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going like, we're going to go. This is the time to do this, to have this experience. We can't wait until we have enough money to do it, you know, because the kids aren't going to be eight and 12 again. They're not going to be 12 and 16 again. This is the moment. Um, and it doesn't have to be something expensive. It can just be the time thing. Could I have picked up more work? Possibly. But I, I guess I'd rather figure that, that I'd, like, to your point, it's all about the time. And, you know, we always felt that that was the first priority to, to spend time with them doing something meaningful. Um, you know, and meaningful could be, let's build one more Lego thing. And, uh, or it could be, you know, let's go hiking. But, you know, I think I absolutely agree that that is where it's, it's all about the time spent. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you coming in here and telling your story. And I wish Amanda could, could say the same. I'm sure she would echo that, but we just had a baby show up at our house. And so she right. me for the baby, go figure. <laughs> you'll never be first again jason you're, you're no. always at best second place you know having seven kids plus a godson yeah i'm not certain exactly <laughs> where i lie in that <laughs> after 7 p.m i'm the king because they're all in bed <laughs> well as long as you know your role as the rock would say know your role that's it. That's it right there, man. But I appreciate you coming in and sharing your time and your story because it sounds like you guys have been through, been through a lot, but you've also, you've created a lot out of what could have been otherwise just a tragedy. Well, I appreciate the time, Jason. And um, to, I mean, please share with Amanda as well. I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about it. Because uh, as I said, you know, the, every chance I get a chance to talk about Katie and her story or, or my kids, you know, as, you know, as a parent, when you get to talk about your kids, that's a good day. And I appreciate it. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Carl's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so he can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with the other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash foster care nation. The links to everything are in the show notes and on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.